Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We are delighted to welcome you to Is the U.S. Really Leading the World in Hypersonic Munitions? Please welcome our host, John Venable, Senior Research Fellow for Defense Policy at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure to welcome you to um, an event I hope you find fascinating, hypersonics, weapons, technology. We're going to talk about it all, and we're going to talk about it for the next 30, 45 minutes. Um, to give you a scheme, a run of the events for the afternoon, I'm going to pelt uh, my new friend, Dr. Uh, Mark Lewis, with a bunch of questions for about 30 minutes. And if I can't stump him, I'm counting on you to do just that. So please feed your questions in that little box on the right-hand side of your screen, and we'll get to them as uh, rapidly as we can. It is my great privilege to introduce Dr. Mark Lewis. Uh, Dr. Lewis is one of the leading uh, authorities in the United States on hypersonics, and there's good reason for it. Not only is he strikingly handsome, but he's wicked smart. Uh, this man has four degrees from MIT, including a, a PhD in those big words like astrophysics and engineering and things like that. Um, his most recent job in the Trump administration was as the director of defense research and engineering. And in that role, he controlled a $17 billion budget. And, and, and the budget controlled agencies like DARPA, uh, the Missile Defense Agency, and uh, the latest of the additions, which is the uh, Space Development a Agency, SDA. Um, he's a former chief scientist of the United States Air Force, and today he's working um, as the, uh, the new executive director for the Emerging Technologies Institute within NDIA. And Mark, it is my privilege to, to talk with you today and, and to talk to you about one of the most complex subjects that you could, you could mention in today's uh, run-of-the-mill conversations, which is hypersonics. If it's okay with you, we're going to do a little bit of a background real quick on why hypersonics are, are so hard and what is the, uh, the big challenge? Why does it have the attention of the, of the Department of Defense the way it is? And Maeve, if you would cue up those first slides for me. These are a little bit archaic, ladies and gentlemen, but if you'll uh, take a peek, and I can't see them myself. Are they up, Maeve? There they come. And so go ahead and cue the animations. And what you'll see is basically a hypersonic round that basically goes around a defensive perimeter. In this particular instance, it's around Chicago and enters into the, the Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and New York City kind of metropolitan area. Next slide. And what's challenging about that is at, when it is 150 miles north of Washington, D.C., it can strike Washington, D.C. itself, Philadelphia, or uh, New York City. And at that point, it's 42 seconds away from impacting a target in the United States. Now, we have a, a, a battery, a series of, of uh, defensive um, uh, weapons around the city, Patriots, that can handle some of that. And Mark, I'd like you to address that here in just a second. But, but this idea of being able to fly a, a weapon, and not just Mach 5, but Mach 10, Mach 17, is incredibly daunting 
uh, with regard to technology. And if you would, Maeve, uh, go through the next two slides. Uh, back in the 1960s, we ran a program called the X-15 program, and we were testing the, the far extremes of speed. That airplane right there in uh, October of 1967 went Mach 6.7. The total powered flight time for that airplane was 141 seconds, just over two minutes. And look at the damage that the heat did to this airplane. That's what it looks like before uh, the flight, just as it's starting its mock run. Next slide, if you would, Maeve. This is the leading edge of the wing. Next slide. And this is a close-up representation of that same wing, if you would. Key that next slide right there. And you can see the heat is starting to eat away at every, um, every surface of that airplane. Next slide. Uh, that, that's a close-up and one more slide, if you would, ma'am. And you can see it's actually eating holes in the surface of this airplane. And that's with 141 seconds of powered flight at an altitude of 100,000 feet, which is wicked high uh, when we think about manned uh, aircraft. And so with that, we've got a bunch of technological challenges. The temperature on the outside of the canopy of that airplane that day, the outside was 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And on the inside, it was 250 degrees. So let's take on, Mark, if it's OK with you, let's take on this technology. How well have we done in, in being able to handle heat on platforms like that? Oh, so first, let me th thanks for the invitation to come. I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, so, so you're exactly right. I think you, you've done a, 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 you made a, a, some excellent points about, first, why we would want to do hypersonics, but then some of the challenges. And there's a whole long list of challenges associated with hypersonic flight. And generally, we define it as flight, as you said, in excess of about five times the speed of sound. And some of the dominant features of flight in that regime, is, as you correctly point out, is being able to handle the heat. Um, of particular, a particularly difficult aspect of that is the, there, there's a, a rule of thumb in aerodynamics that the sharper you are, the hotter you get. But if you want to fly for long distances in the atmosphere, you need to have very low drag. You need to have low resistance to moving through that, that air. And one of the ways you do that is with a sharp surface. So for example, the wing on the X-15 it was a sharp leading edge. It was a sharp wing, so it could slice through the air with relatively low drag, but then it got very hot. Now, of course, we have a lot of experience moving at high speed through the atmosphere from the space program. Every time an Apollo capsule or Gemini capsule, Mercury, the space shuttle, whenever they came into the atmosphere, they were traveling at hypersonic speeds. But if you look at those spacecraft, they've got big, thick, blunt shapes. Even on the space shuttle, the wings are really thick, really blunt, so that they don't get as hot. Now, in those instances, they had a lot of drag, but we want to drag on those. When you're coming back from space, you want to slow down, so drag is your friend. This new class, this new application, the weapons application that we're now interested in, drag is not your friend. You want, you want to slice through the air as cleanly and effectively as possible to go as far as possible. So that's the challenge. Um, I happen to say we've actually advanced the state of the art significantly, both a combination of, first, understanding the aerodynamics, understanding the physics of what happens when you travel at those speeds. X-15 is a great example. If you look at some of the, the, the experiences we had flying the X-15, um, we encountered aerodynamic phenomena that at the time we didn't understand, and now we understand quite well. Um, one of the most challenging phenomena they encountered, any object that travels faster than the speed of sound generates a shock wave. 
a sudden change in pressure and temperature. It becomes one of the defining features of an airplane that moves faster than sound. Under some conditions, that shock wave can contribute to heating on the surface. And that was something that was not very well understood in the days of the X-15 program, you know, 50 years ago now. But now we've got a really good handle on this. Um, I'd also point out that we've had a number of flight test programs, developmental programs, that have really advanced the state of the art. So, so hypersonics, you know, for, for years I, I had friends who would, who, would, who would kid me that hypersonics is the future and it always will be. Well, that's actually no longer true. We're at the point where we know how to build these systems, we have built these systems, we've flown these systems successfully, and especially for some of the defense applications. Oh, fantastic. So there's a couple of challenges. One is heat. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one's propulsion. Right. And when you're talking about a rocket motor like that, you fill it full of really volatile fuel and you can burn it wicked fast. But then you're out of fuel uh, with these really high-end, high-thrust munitions. How are we doing with that, and what kind of propulsion do these systems need? All right, so that's also a wonderful question. So, so you're, you're basically, if you want to fly at hypersonic speeds, as you point out, you, you essentially have two choices. One is you use a rocket to get you up to those speeds. And then rockets are, have a limited fuel, because a rocket is carrying both its fuel and the oxidizer that burns with that fuel in its tanks or in its, in its solid mix. So the result is rockets give you lots of thrust, they'll get you up to speed very quickly, but they only run for a limited period of time. The other alternative is to do a jet engine. Now, jet engines um, at the, in these speed ranges are very, very difficult to build. Back in 1958, there was a type of jet engine that was envisioned that was named the scramjet, the supersonic combustion ramjet, which we still believe is the key to flying at sustained hypersonic speeds in the atmosphere. It was first conceived of in 1958. We first flew the fully operational scramjet in 2004. So it took us 46 years of research to get it right. Arguably, there was a group in Australia that flew one in 2002. We debate back and forth whether it was, you know, fully operational engine. But really, from the 1950s to the early 2000s. Um, scramjets are very challenging engines for the following reason. Air goes into a scramjet, fuel mixes, it burns, it heats up the air, and that expands out the back to give you thrust. But the air that's moving through the engine is moving so quickly, it doesn't have a lot of time in the combustion chamber. I'll give you an example. Um, one of the scramjet engine programs that we operated from the Air Force was something called the X-51. In the engine of the X-51, a molecule of air spent about one one-thousandth of a second traveling from the front of the engine to the back of the engine. So in one one-thousandth of a second, you're squirting fuel, mixing it, burning it, and getting useful thrust. That's really challenging. But we've learned how to do that. Now, that has led to an interesting, uh, almost a debate over what is the best way to propel these systems. Do you want to do it on a rocket engine, or do you want to do it on a jet engine? And they both have their pros and cons. Rocket engine is relatively simple. But the problem is, the rocket only goes so far, and then you separate your hypersonic, whatever it is, your hypersonic warhead, and it glides the rest of the way. That means that it's losing energy, it's slowing down. So that initial rocket engine has to overspeed. So you're going to higher Mach numbers, often higher altitudes, and then you're bleeding off energy. That's really difficult because your leading edges get hot, your surfaces get hot. You know, if you want an average Mach number of Mach 5, you might be accelerating all the way to Mach 10 and then slowing down on your way. So you're stressing materials, you're stressing design. On the flip side, scramjet powered, that's great that it you know, goes much longer range in the atmosphere. 
But now you've got all the complexities of designing that engine, designing the injectors, integrating that engine to the rest of the vehicle, making sure that the air that goes in the front of the engine is properly conditioned, that the flow is of the right condition, making sure that the flow that comes out of the nozzle is matched to the rest of the aerodynamics of the vehicle. So both of these are complicated problems. Yeah, it's wicked complicated. Yeah. Yeah. So this is not our first conversation, and I just love where we're going to go now. So I, I used to fly fighters, and when we approached the Mach, so we'd be flying 450, 500 knots, but you got a big motor, and it, as you, it accelerated you, you're trying to turn tight. You're still pulling 9Gs. That motor is accelerating you, and your turn circle is getting bigger and bigger. Right. 9Gs is a lot of stress on it. When you're talking about Mach 1, that's one thing. When you're talking about Mach 10 or Mach 20, those numbers go astronomical. And in order to, to basically turn as best you can in the system and apply as many Gs as you can with the known systems that we have right now, missiles that can take 60 Gs of, of, of turn, a 60 G turn at Mach 17 means you have a 150 mile radius turn circle. That's crazy big, right? right. Yes. And so your maneuverability is not that much, but you also have, so the stress on the wings of this, uh, this platform is one thing, but then you have that airflow thing that you talked about with the engine. How are we doing with regard to overcoming both of those challenges to make these systems really maneuverable and being able to handle the stress? So, you know, I, I love that question because you, you get to a really key point about this technology. Often people think hypersonics is only about speed. It's not. It's a combination of speed and maneuverability. And the fact that you're in the atmosphere, so you can use aerodynamic forces, you can do wings and flaps to control the direction, and as, as your graphic showed, that you can now become unpredictable. So, it, so, so your, your, your question is absolutely spot on, that it's, it's that combination of speed and maneuverability. And you're right, as you go higher and higher up the Mach scale, your turning radius gets larger and larger. In the, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, the United States had a program called the National Aerospace Plane which was uh, President Reagan's uh, announced program that was going to do a, you know, an airplane that could fly up to orbit or an airplane that could fly anywhere on the, in the planet in about two hours. The turning radius of that would have been about the size of a continent, right? so not very maneuverable. But remember, um, if we talk about smaller munitions, if we're talking about things in the Mach 5, Mach 10 range, those suddenly become much, much uh, more maneuverable. And you can get really tight turning radiuses. You know, if you're willing to take the high G load, which especially for an unmanned system, you can do. Uh, some of the, the tactical systems that we talk about, um, some of the DARPA systems, for example, that we might talk about, uh, they can get to much, much tighter turning radii. And, and that's, that's an essential element of what they do. Now, back to your original question about the propulsion. Um, you've pointed out another distinction between rockets versus the air-breathing scramjets, right? So, so if you've got an engine that's relying on atmospheric air, you have an inlet, so air is coming in the front. That means that air has to be in the right condition. So that can have limitations on your maneuverability. Right. So that's one of the trade-offs. But we've actually learned, one of the great realizations that we've had in the last, oh, almost two decades of research in these classes of engines, if you'd asked back in the early 1990s, can you maneuver a scramjet engine? We thought you couldn't. We thought if you turned too sharply, the engine would stop working. And now we've learned that that's actually not the case. We can build these engines so that they handle a certain degree of maneuverability, and so the vehicles that they're mounted on can, can, can be maneuverable and unpredictable. Very cool. So if I was to go into the fourth side, now we've got a vehicle that goes fast, it can turn, but now I want to use it as a munition, right? So how do I get it to an in-game guidance? So if you go into a GPS, uh, fixed target kind of thought process, 
that's kind of interesting. You've, you're going to have to have this compartmentalized GPS receiver with controls in the back that can turn it associated with it, but it has to be able to sustain or, or work through the heat associated with the systems. Right. Now you talk about IR or millimeter wave guidance systems, and now you're introducing something that's got to be shot out the front and then received in return through this plasma of heat that's out there. How are we doing there? So that's another area we're doing, we're doing quite well. And, and here's the thing, especially in the end game for most of these systems, especially for hypersonics, hypersonic munition, um, if you're traveling most of your flight at, say, Mach 5 or Mach 7 or even Mach 10, towards the end of flight, you're going to be slowing down. You'll probably be in the Mach 3 to 4 range. Um, plasma effects are really no longer that significant. Um, we've got tremendous advances in sensors that can close close that loop at, at, at the end game. Um, again, it's an area that, that um, we as Americans can actually be very proud of because our, our, our engineers have done a really fine job. Um, you, your question also alludes to the, the, this, this concern that when you're traveling at very high speeds, the temperatures can be so hot that you form a plasma layer around the vehicle, that the, that the gas that's surrounding the vehicle gets so heated that electrons get ripped off of their atoms, and so you get a charged, charged gas surrounding the vehicle. Um, it turns out that at most of the, the Mach numbers that we would operate these things, you're not quite in that plasma range. So if you're in the seven, Mach 17, Mach 20, Mach 22, you would worry about that. If you're in the Mach 5, Mach 6 range, it's not so much of a concern. Excellent. So I'm going to turn into this uh, idea of munitions and then the, the pure com competition, but this is a warning order for you guys out there and you folks in the audience. If you've got questions, now's the time to queue them up because we're going to go fast and furious here in just a few minutes. But now we're talking about um, the United States, the leader of all nations in technology. And, and, and I know that at one point we had the lead of all other nations. China has supposedly fielded hypersonic munitions, and this is all in the press, I, I, not in, into the reading, but uh, if you lis listen to Putin right now, he's talking about uh, munitions that travel up to Mach, into the Mach 20s, as well as he, he calls it a cruise missile. And when we think of cruise missiles, we're thinking about you know tree-hugging kind of missiles that will go at Mach five, Mach seven, and Mach 10. If you go back to that video or that, the, the, the frames that we showed about the uh, X-15 earlier, that's 100,000 feet where the molecules are really spread out. You get down low and they're really tight together and you generate a lot of heat. How are we doing in comparison to China and Russia? And if we don't have the lead anymore, how do we mess it up? Oh gosh, so that's, that's a very frustrating question because the, the question almost answers itself. Um, I will say that by any standard that I could construct, by any metric, we don't have the lead. And that is incredibly frustrating because as you pointed out, this is a field that we invented. Right? The first human-built hypersonic object was launched from the United States in the late 1940s, something called Project Bumper. It came out of World War II. We had a captured V-2 rocket. We put a sounding rocket on the nose of that thing, launched it. It was run by a fellow named Frank Molina, University of Texas, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Texas A&M graduate. Ooh, my Texas friends are going to beat me up for that. Um, it was 1948, and then as you know, you show the X-15 program throughout the 1960s, we pioneered in space applications, even the space shuttle. Look at even uh, the space missions we're doing today, the Mars landers. That all depends on an understanding of hypersonic flight. 
And in the 19, even up into the late 1980s, early 1990s, we were clearly the lead. We were leading in the scramjet engine. We invented the idea. We developed it. We tested it. And then, frankly, we took our foot off the gas. Um, we had programs that failed for reasons unrelated to the hypersonic technology we were trying to test, and we canceled them. We had programs that succeeded, did everything we wanted to do, and we didn't continue them. And we made some decisions. We took a leisurely pace. Um, there were decisions made by prior leadership. And, and then, to compound that, we, did a, we, we wrote lots of documents that said hypersonics were essential. Hypersonics are going to be a key technology of the future. In 2014, the United States Air Force released this beautiful document about the future of the Air Force, projecting the 2030s. Uh, General Mark Welsh and, and his team had, 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 you know, had put this document together. And the first technology they highlight is hypersonics. So we did the, the, the worst of all things. We did the preliminary work. We published a lot of it. We distributed a lot of it. And then we told everyone, this is really important. This is going to be key to, future, to future, the future fight. And then, we, and then we, we stepped back and we took a leisurely pace. And I can give you example after example of that. In, in the early 2000s, in 2004, NASA flew a vehicle called the X-43. I call that the Kitty Hawk moment in hypersonics. Right? That was the first fully integrated scramjet engine, supersonic combustion ramjet, on a flight vehicle, launched on a rocket, and then the scramjet engine took over. They, did, they had two successful flights, one at about Mach 7, the other at about Mach 10. And when that program was all done, did they do the obvious thing, keep flying it, build more, expand the envelope? No. They canceled the program. They stopped doing it. All right? Then the United States Air Force comes in with their program, the X-51. X-51 was, in many ways, a follow-on to X-43. It was also a scramjet-powered system. In this case, ran for much longer periods of time, long enough for a real cruise missile to, to accomplish you know, a mission. It was not a missile. It was a demonstrator, but it was missile-like. Um, X-51 had four flights. Two of them were, were very successful. The last flight had 210 seconds of scramjet-powered flight at almost Mach 5. And when, when that program was all done, what did we do? Did we keep building more? Did we expand the flight envelope? No, we stopped. And so now we're in this situation. Um, you know, the last flight of a scramjet-powered system in the United States was 2013. And that was a program that began flying in 2010. Well, here we are in 2021. How many scramjets are we flying? We're not. Meanwhile, you know, as you pointed out, the, the, both China and Russia have not been shy. I mean, they brag about their investments. The, you know, the Chinese actually rolled out some of their hypersonic systems at their military parade uh, um, not too long ago. Uh, you point out, uh, Vladimir Putin himself brags about their hypersonic systems. It, it's really quite frustrating. So, you know, you used to watch um, Saddam Hussein pull out some really wicked wi weapons on occasion, and they were kind of facades. Right? They roll them out and you go, that, there's really nothing behind that. Yeah. Is there something behind the Chinese? Is there something behind the Russians? Are they actually flying these munitions now? So, you know, obviously, to the extent that we can discuss it in this open forum, um, the, the Chinese are, 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 have especially, the Chinese and the Russians both, the Chinese have made some cre very credible strides. Um, I'll tell you the, the thing about the Chinese that I also find, you know, I, 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 give, them, I give them, you know, a, a degree of proper respect in that not only have they rolled out these programs, but they're clearly investing for the long run. So, um, you know, if you see their investments in universities, their investment in wind tunnels. You know, you can, you can actually go on YouTube and you can see pictures of Chinese wind tunnels. They've built the world's biggest shock tube. Right? That's an investment for the future. That's not a one-off program. That says we're in this domain and we are here to stay. Um, you know, even when we have our international conferences, our unclassified conferences, we see many, many attendees from across China, including, including their universities. Um, 
they have invested heavily in their next generation, in their workforce, which again tells me that they're taking this very seriously. They are here to stay. Um, they've also done some things that, um, frankly, again, my, my hat's off to them. If you look at some of the modeling that they're doing, they've published papers where they've done computer modeling on, on high-speed flow. It's really good work. Um, when they built one of their wind tunnels, um, I had some colleagues that said, well, they don't know how to build good wind tunnels. I mean, anyone can build a wind tunnel, but can you build a really good wind tunnel that properly simulates the flight conditions accurately? And, and then we looked at the data that they presented at international conferences, and yeah, it was, it was a really good wind tunnel. So, yes, they're, they're not to be taken lightly. So, uh, in 1967, I think, we flew Mach 6.7. The Army, the Navy, the Air Force right now are all collaborating on a munition, the, the propellant, the, the, the guidance mechanism, the entire thing. Mm -hmm. Surely, we're above where we were in the 1960s, right? Uh, well, so, <laughs> I wish I could say we were. The, the, the program you alluded to, the X-15 program, I think is still the gold standard not only for hypersonics, by the way, but for flight tests in general. So think about this program. Um, it was a program that consisted of three flight test vehicles. Two of them are still around. One is, one is, is on the mall at the Air and Space Museum. The other is in the Air Force Museum in Dayton, Ohio. Um, one was launched, lost in flight, by the way. The, the three vehicles together did 199 flight tests. Right? Um, the, the data that they produced, thousands and thousands, thousands of documents came that informed a whole range, everything from the design of the space shuttle to uh, things that we're doing today, um, work on scramjets that we're doing today, benefits from research that was done uh, in the X-15 program. Um, there was a sense of fly early, fly often. If something goes wrong, you fix it and you get in the air again. Right? That to me was the pinnacle of flight test. And as you point out, that, that Mach 6.7 manned flight record stands today. Now we have topped that record. The X-43 went faster for a shorter period of time, but without a human being sitting in a cockpit. To be fair, our programs today are mostly focused on uncrewed systems, systems without humans being, because you know, we're, we're really focused on what I call the low-hanging fruit, which are the, the munitions. But still, I, can, I will tell you very candidly, I wish we had an X-15. I wish we could be entering the hypersonic flight corridor on a regular basis. There are some ideas out there. Um, I'm, I'm actually involved in a company called uh, Stratolaunch which is looking at a reusable hypersonic flight test bed. And, and that's where we need to be. We need to have things that we can fly not once every 10 years, but once every two weeks. And when something goes wrong, we fix it and we fly it again. And when we get some data and we don't understand it, we do another experiment, we follow on, and we get to the, we get to the root of what we didn't understand. That's where we need to be, and we're not there today. Yeah, thank you for that. So we've got about three or four more uh, minutes of my questions, and I've got one or two doozies for you, I think. But again, start cranking them up, ladies and gentlemen. So this, uh, the, the, the scenario that I painted for you earlier, you saw um, a munition coming across the United States, making a turn around Chicago and then coming into this area. Um, the, the idea of us being able to track Santa Claus as he comes across the United States yeah. in a hypersonic vehicle that's going to attack a city, do we have that capability today? So it would be difficult. But I will actually tell you, that's not the scenario that worries me the most. And, and I'll explain why. So, you know, if we were facing, say, a missile barrage that was relying on hypersonic technology for that degree of maneuverability, it doesn't actually change a lot of ways that we would respond because, frankly, if, if the barrage of missiles are coming over, uh, coming over the pole, there's not a lot we're going to be able to do about it. 
And so watching an individual missile and trying to figure out, is it going to New York? Is it going to Philadelphia? Is it going to Washington? It's not like in any scenario you'd have a lot of time to evacuate those cities. So, so that's, that's a scary scenario. But to me, the much more worrisome scenario was actually the tactical application of hypersonics. And if you look at the Chinese applications using hypersonic weapons against our carriers, against our air bases, where suddenly they hold our assets at risk. You know, I, I'm, 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 I'm fond of saying, or maybe fond is the wrong word, I, 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 I often say that with a hypersonic weapon capability, it no longer takes a first-class air force to, to counter our first-class air force. It no longer takes a first-class navy to counter our first-class navy. You know, if the Chinese can hold our carriers at risk, if they can put craters in every one of our air bases so we cannot operate and we can't stop them from doing that, then that is an incredibly powerful capability that, that they have at their disposal. And that's the scenario that I'm actually most worried about. So let's go down that path. Yeah. So in that same scenario, you saw the missile coming into the, the Washington, D.C. area where we have a couple of Patriot systems. Yeah. How well does our point defense system, whether it's SM3, FAD, or it's Patriot, how well do those systems, would they work against a hypersonic vehicle? So the answer is, it would be, I guess the best I can say, it would be a little bit problematical. And, and by the way, we, we, you know, if you look at, especially some of the Chinese systems, um, it, it kind of has you scratching your head because it's as if they almost knew what the capabilities of our systems were. And again, something else I'll point out, that you know, we have peer competitors who have been studying us for the last three decades, and they've learned our vulnerabilities, they've learned our weaknesses. Um, we had the honor of hosting uh, uh, the Vice Chairman, John Hyten, at NDIA uh, earlier in the week for, our, for the rollout of our, of our new institute. And, and he made the point that we have an adversary that has studied us very, very carefully and knows what our capabilities are. Now, having said that, we can defend against the hypersonic system. It's difficult. It's not impossible. The biggest challenge is actually detecting it. And you know, if you can't see it, you can't stop it. So that's why the, the, the department is, is investing in something called the HBTSS, the Hypersonic Ballistic Tracking Satellite System. Um, it's an infrared system in space that can identify these targets. Now, now think about the challenges there. So you pointed out hypersonic vehicles are hot. You think, well, easy to see in infrared. Not that easy. Because if you're, if you're looking from the ground, you only get a certain window, because they're at a high altitude, but not so high that you get a, you get a large, large uh, view angle. You can see them from space, but you're looking at them against the background of the Earth. So we can do it, but it requires absolutely state-of-the-art technology. A um, couple of months ago, there was a, a report written by some folks who claimed, oh, we didn't need any new sensors in space because we can do this. Absolute nonsense. We need new sensors to do this. That's why the HBTSS is so important. But at the same time, it is doable technology. So Sibber's really high, right? So yeah. you've got the, the LEO network yeah. that's going out there. Is that the solution? Is that where SDA is going with this? Yeah, and proliferated LEO is, 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 is a key to this. And, and I, I have to admit, I'm an unabashed fan of all the work the SDA is doing. Um, um, uh, across the board, they're, 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 um, they, they've got the right mindset that, that one of the ways to make space more robust is to invest in these proliferated constellations. But one of the benefits that you also get is the ability to, to view these potential threats from, from the right, basically from the right orbit. Very wonderful. Well, it's time to open this up to the audience. We've got an audience here, ladies and gentlemen, believe it or not, and we've also got you at home. So, Fred, we'll take the first question if you've got it. Perfect. Uh, the last hypersonic flight test announced by DOD occurred in March 2020. 
Since then, there has been a series of delays and botched attempts. Most recently, General Ray said ARRW would stage its first test in July, but so far there has been no confirmation that it that has happened. What would what do you think is causing these delays, and how can the Air Force get ARRW and HAWC back on track? So that's a great question. So I'm no longer in the Pentagon. So that means I don't have the handlers who pounce when I start answering the question. So, um, you know, um, obviously, if there had been some, if there had been successes there, you probably would have been hearing the cheering all the way from Edwards Air Force Base. Um, and you know, we saw a series of flight test failures that are kind of I put in the category of embarrassing failures. And and here's what I attribute it to. So there are several factors. One is we don't do it enough. We have forgotten how to do it. All right. The, there there there's there's an there's a science, but there's also an art to flight test. And if you don't do it often enough, you forget how to do that. And I'll harken back to you know that X-15 program. I mean, they were flying roughly every 18 days. That's how you learn to do flight tests. That's how you learn to get it right. So we've lost that. That's number one. Number two, we have made it so difficult for ourselves to do flight tests, right? Um, when we did the X-51 program, uh, we were flying out of Edwards Air Force Base out over Point Magoo into the Pacific Ocean. First, you require so many assets now, the way we do our flights, it's expensive to do these flight tests. But second, there are so many pe we are so risk averse. There are so many people now who can say no. In the first flight of X-51, we were all set to fly it, and a freighter sailed into the splash zone. We called off the flight. And, and, and you know, th then, of course, we, you know, we battle with priorities on the flight test range. Um, it, it's really a frustrating situation, and, and, and it's something that, that, frankly, I think we really need to address and we really need to fix. We need to be flying early. We need to fly off, and that's why I'll come back to we need repeated access into the hypersonic flight corridor. Um, we should be ashamed of ourselves, frankly. Did we uh, balk at a, at, a, at a test run last week? So this is what I've heard. <laughs> I have no confirmation of that. But um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's kind of, again, it's, it's, it's all kind of frustrating. It's just crazy how uh, yeah. this whole thing comes into play uh, the, from the environment to uh, individuals yeah. to uh, government yeah. intrusion. And, and by the way, if, if I can elaborate some more, I don't want to, I, I know we want to leave time for other questions, but it, it, it leads to this mindset, which, which gets you into a very dangerous spiral, which is a flight test becomes so expensive and so there's so few and far between that you suddenly take on this mindset that you dare not fail. And so everything gets put on the one flight test. And by the way, if you're not failing occasionally, you're not pushing the envelope. But then when we do fail, it becomes a calamity. And we spend a year trying to figure out what went wrong. And that further delays us. And it's, it's rinse, lather, and repeat. And so that's why we, we don't succeed in these endeavors. Next question. Uh, I'll mix two of them because they are on the same topic. What new materials successfully overcome the heat and pressure of hypersonics? And besides working on propulsion, are we working on surface that are better at mitigating heat damage? So uh, we've actually got a range of materials. Um, and it depends on the application, depends on the system. And, and for that, I'll, I'll point out, you know, hypersonics, is, it's really a broad range of, of things. It's not just one thing. It's everything from, you know, Mach 5 cruise missiles to Mach 20 glide systems. Each one of those would have its different material requirements. And, and, and we've done a pretty good job of developing a range of high temperature materials, everything from high temperature ceramics to materials that were derived from the space program. Uh, X-51, for example, was was, was mostly built with materials that derived from the shuttle program, and even high-temperature metals when those applications are, 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 are suitable. So when you go back to Putin's claim that uh, cruise missile uh, Mach 5, Mach 7, 
Is that realistic today? That's realistic, yeah. Wow. So, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, after we flew the first flight of X-43, the chief engineer was a brilliant NASA engineer by the name of Randy Volan, and he was doing a press interview, and a reporter asked him, what was the most important thing you learned from this flight? And he said, we learned it's not that hard. It's actually not that hard. We know how to build these engines. We know how to build these airframes. We know how to integrate them. We know how to keep them from melting. We know how to build the guidance systems. This stuff actually works. Amazing. Yeah. We have a question from the audience. Uh, Patty Jane Gillen. Um, yes, thanks. I'm Patty Jane. I'm the nuclear deterrence analyst here at Heritage. Um, and earlier you touched on um, your concern over the tactical application of, right. of hypersonic weapons. I wanted to dig a bit deeper into that and ask specifically about Russia's new, um, their exotic nuclear-tipped hypersonic weapons. I think there's the, the Zirkson and the Kinzhal, one air-launched, one sea-launched. Um, I've heard the argument that uh, those weapons don't really impact our deterrence calculus because um, the U.S. still has nuclear weapons to retaliate. Um, do you agree with that argument? And if not, wh why should we be worrying about uh, these new systems? So mostly I do. That's why I say I'm, I actually don't worry that much about that. For me, the Russians are mostly, frankly, mostly bluster. Um, it really is the Chinese systems because I think it's, it's the tactical applications that I worry about most. It's the tactical implications of hypersonic systems. Um, I will point out, we were, when, I was in the bill, when I was in the Pentagon, we were very careful to draw a distinction that we, would, we were not thinking about putting nuclear warheads on our hypersonic systems. We were very careful about that because we frankly didn't see any benefits for us to do so. Um, we saw hypersonics as an alternative to nuclear systems. And in fact, occasionally I'd have someone ask me, well, isn't the hypersonic system going to be escalatory? I'd say, no, it's actually de-escalatory. Because we had some scenarios where the only current solution was a nuclear solution. But if I could do it with a hypersonic system instead, well, that's de-escalatory, not escalatory. So that was an important distinction. I will point out the Chinese uh, uh, have been very open that they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll swap conventional nuclear warheads on their systems. They, they, like, they like to uh, uh, con confound the issue that way, um, which I think is a big concern. So nuclear warheads we don't do. Are we putting any explosive in them, or is it all kinetic? Um, combinations. So you know when you're traveling at those speeds, of course, you, you've got a lot of kinetic energy, and you can use that to your advantage. But, but for most of the end game scenarios, you still want to have some, some uh, warhead and some fusing system. Great. Next question, Fred. You stole the question that I had, uh, which was on the kinetic energy. And if uh, the second part of that question was if the, the, we can ever get the unit cost below $2 million or less. And I think it would be interesting to hear your perspective. Yeah, so that's also a great question. Um, you know, when, when, when people ask me, why do we want hypersonic systems, I have a standard comeback, which is, well, why wouldn't we want hypersonic systems? And, and you know, if I could give you a cruise, let's say I take, I take your Tomahawk cruise missile, I'll say, I'm going to replace your Tomahawk with a hypersonic system. It does everything the Tomahawk does, but it does it at Mach 5 instead of Mach point whatever. Why wouldn't you want it? And there are a couple of reasons why you wouldn't want it. One would be if it doesn't actually perform as well, if it doesn't have the same range, same performance. But two, if it's really expensive. So cost has to be a factor here. So it raises the question, how expensive is a hypersonic, is a hypersonic weapon? There is a sense that hypersonic weapons have to be super expensive, and I disagree with that. It depends on the system. For the hypersonic tactical systems, for example, a scramjet-powered hypersonic system is going to be a little bit more expensive than the, the conventional system, but not an order of magnitude more. So $2 million around, I think, perfectly reasonable, perfectly, under, perfectly um, um, acceptable uh, for, for a price point. Now, let me also point out, the argument shouldn't be price per weapon. It should be price per effect. 
So if my hypersonic cruise missile is twice the cost of my subsonic missile and it's five times more likely to survive and hit its target, I've won. That's, that's, that, that comes out in the cost-benefit analysis. Next question. Uh, one other question. Uh, are there any particular basing concerns associated with hypersonics, fuel stability, storage conditions, and ciliary services? So, you know, uh, uh, facility issues, that I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of putting hypersonic weapons under wings of airplanes and in bomb bays and on surface ships. Um, I think that's, that's, that's really the killer application. Um, obviously, if you want to do basing, you know, the Army is looking at systems where they would be basing, basing them a little bit more permanently or putting them on trucks. That becomes a little bit more problematical. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess I'm an Air Force guy, but, but to me, the, the, the best application is being able to load up a bomb bay with hypersonic tactical systems. Another question from the audience. Yeah, thank you. Tom Spohr, the Heritage yeah. Foundation. I was hoping you'd characterize your opinion on the adequacy of funding against these hypersonic programs. I know they're spread among some of the services, but in general terms, what's your view on how, we'll, how well we are doing on funding these programs? Thank you. So, great question about funding. So I would, I would credit the, our, our previous team in the Pentagon of, of taking this area extremely seriously. Um, one of my heroes in this realm is, is our former Deputy Secretary of Defense, David Norquist. Um, he took this on as, as one, of, one of his key issues. And we have, an we have a very significant amount of funding in this area right now. Um, I'm hoping the current administration uh, uh, follows through on that. Um, now, having said that, we're not out of the woods because we now have a large target, all right? Um, and so my worry is that you'll see people picking away at the funding that we, al that we had allocated for hypersonics. Um, but in my mind, it's not just the amount of money, it's how you spend it. So I'll give you an example of one of the great successes that we had. Um, we set up something called the Joint Hypersonic Transition Office, the JHTO. And it was un under the office that I ran, under the Research and Engineering Office. Um, it was created by Congress, but, 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 but very, very well conceived. All right, so among the things that office is doing is, it's making sure that we have a diversity of technologies for propulsion. Right, instead of, right now, we really only have one or two sources for a scramjet engine. They're diversifying that, that technology base. But they've also, one of the amazing things they've done is um, invested in a university consortium that right now has 65 universities working on problems related to hypersonics. So my comment about the Chinese investing in the future, the JHTO is also investing in the future. And this is a consortium that's now run down at, uh, centered out at uh, Texas A&M, but it's got this group of universities, including international universities. So those are some of the smart things that we've done. We other, also made some other, what I would argue, were smart decisions in how we invest our dollars. Again, hypersonics is a broad range of systems. It's everything from you know, the Mach 20 uh, uh, long-range gl uh, glide systems to the tactical systems. Um, if you roll back to two years ago, uh, there was, in, frankly, inadequate investment in the air-breathing propulsion systems on, on the scramjet-powered systems. There was basically the one program at DARPA, the Hawk program, which was really our only program at the time. And the Air Force had a pro the Air Force was, was was building on another DARPA program, the Tactical Boost Glide, the TBG program, that then evolves into the Arrow program. That doesn't use scramjets; that uses rocket power. So, so in essence, we had this dead end program for in air breathing propulsion. Over the last year and a half, that changed. Uh, the Air Force uh, re re uh, reconfigured their investment portfolio. They embraced the idea of doing an air breathing cruise missile. As a side note, every time we wargame that, it comes out really, really well. But then, 
that joint hypersonic transition office that, we, that, that I talked about, well, they've also picked up a lot of the work. They built a program with some of our, our partners, including a program with Australia that, that, that furthers some of the activities of the DARPA Air Breathing Cruise Missile Program and will, I think, is one of our most, single most promising technologies for, for the application of this capability. Oh, fantastic. So we're approaching the end, but I've got a, bat, a cleanup question for you. Um, we talked about the past doing really good. We talked about the recent past and mm -hmm. where we are right now, which is behind. Mm -hmm. um, RDT&E funding is an all-time high. Air Force is now 50% above uh, procurement is the right. RDT&E budget. Right. What does the future hold? Are we going to catch up? Are we going to take the lead? What do you think? So the answer is it's not, a techn it's not technology, it's policy. We can catch up. But we need to be thinking differently. We need to be thinking of delivering this capability at scale. Right? The Chinese, the Russians aren't going to be, aren't going to be worried about uh, a system that delivers three or five or eight hypersonic missiles. We need to be thinking hundreds. We need to be thinking thousands. All right? um, the department does have a plan to do that. It's the hypersonic acceleration plan. Everyone makes fun of that. Hypersonic acceleration. Got it. Hypersonic <laughs> acceleration plan. The principal director for hypersonics, Mike White, unveiled that plan um, actually over a year ago now. If we stick to that plan, then yes, we will not only catch up, we'll exceed. So you think it's a high-speed organization then? <laughs> it's definitely oh, high-speed. Right. If, if I can leave you with this thought. So every time we have done a war game in a peer-to-peer -peer, peer competition, if we do not have hypersonics, we lose, period. If we have hypersonics, we have a possibility of winning, but then it comes down to magazine size. Right? We need to have not only hypersonic capability, but enough hypersonic systems that we can participate in a sustained fight. And, and that's our challenge. I think they call that the drop the mic moment. And ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> we need to move on this. If you're a fan, uh, get on board and start pushing the ball. If you've got any questions that are uh, back in, in the back of your mind that we didn't answer, if you'll pelt that system with uh, those questions now, we'll do our best to get back with you on with the answers. It's been a pleasure to be with you. And uh, you were all too kind in your questions. I hope that when the, uh, the survey hits your inbox here shortly, uh, you'll take the time to give us some feedback on what you thought of the session. Before we close, Mark, I've got to say thank you. It is always a joy talking with you. I learn something agop every time we, we get together. <laughs> the pleasure is all mine. And thank I'm you grateful. so much for the opportunity. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you.